When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, this is Larry H. Russell here. Featured columnist at CLNS Radio, familiar voice here on Celtics Beat, and of course, author of the now critically acclaimed Fall of the Boston Celtics. Thank you to all those who have downloaded the book. Your appreciation only serves as a validation. And to those still interested in claiming your free copy that you are obligated to as a Celtics or an NBA fan, go to www.clnsradio.com slash LHRbook. That's clnsradio.com slash LHRbook. But for now, we know why you're here. To listen to the number one Boston Celtics podcast on the web, Celtics Beat. Brought to you by lynda.com. Now, on with the show. All right, thank you, Mr. Larry H. Russell. I am your host. Uh, yes, Larry H. Russell. Yes, it's Sunday, January 18th, 2015. Championship Sunday in the NFL, not Championship Sunday for the Boston Celtics, unfortunately. But you heard the message in the opening. We are two weeks into the highly successful release of my author debut, Fall the Boston Celtics, how bad luck, bad decisions brought the mighty Celtics empire to its knees and ushered in the dark ages. Once again, I'd like to reiterate thanking everyone who downloaded the book for making it such a great success. The reviews I've ever seen have been absolutely overwhelming. And of course, as also mentioned in the intro, thank you once again for your continued support of this podcast, the number one podcast on the web which covers the Boston Celtics. Thank you, audience, for listening week in and week out for making this all possible. And, of course, for also lynda.com for making this all possible as well, our great sponsor. Easy to listen to this show, not easy to watch these Boston Celtics, but very happy you're here to be listening with me again. So we're going to talk about another dismal week with the uh, Boston Celtics, of course. But before we get back into reality, get back into the present, still going to talk about the book. I got Dan Shaughnessy coming on in our first guest segment. We're all very familiar with Dan Shaughnessy, not just Celtics fans who, as Dan was covering on the Celtics beat for so many years, but just sports fans here in general. Dan obviously was the author of a great book on the Boston Celtics himself, one of the definitive books on their history, actually, Evergreen. We're going to be talking more to, with Dan about that. And then, obviously, as I mentioned, a return to the present, a return to, well, Dark Ages Part 2. It's been a tough season so far if you're a fan of the team. Certainly been a tough season so far, even as a member of the media as I am. Another brutal week for the Celtics, including these last two games at home. Yes, they played, for my money, the two best teams in the Eastern Conference, Atlanta and Chicago. However, they just completely decimated the Celtics in, here in Boston. Never any, never a competitive game. Celtics are now, oh, it's, it's, they're rebuilding, but it's tough. They're a stop on the map for NBA teams. We're hoping it's going to turn around soon, but for now... Not good because they start a pretty interesting swing coming up. You know, they're going out west. Pretty much going to be the death knell in this season. And tomorrow's game is against the Los Angeles Clippers. Martin Luther King Day matinee. Going to be talking with, for my money, the best color commentator in the NBA, in the association. That's Fox Sports West. And actually, former Celtic Michael Smith he will be our second guest on. Later in the show, he announces Clippers games alongside the legendary Ralph Lauer. That'll come up a little later. But for now, we're going to hit that time machine once again and discuss the doldrums period with longtime Boston Globe scribe 
and best-selling author himself, Dan Shaughnessy. So let's not waste any time as we got Dan here right now. Our interview with Dan is brought to you by BeatsAndEats.net, food, comedy, pop culture, and more. That's BeatsAndEats.net. Dan Shaughnessy, once again, longtime Globes columnist, former Celtics beat writer himself during far more enjoyable times, and best-selling author on many great books on baseball, the Red Sox. But his big one, include, to me, was Evergreen, which came out in 1991. That's Evergreen, the Boston Celtics, a history in the words of their players, coaches, fans, and foes from 1946 to present. Well, 1946 to 1991. Dan, this is the first time we've had you on the show. Welcome into Celtics Beat. All right, then. One of my personal favorites, I remember picking this off the shelf at Newton North High School when I was a freshman there, skipping as I was failing out of Mrs. Fadden's AP history class, jumped into Newton North, pulled Evergreen, the Boston Celtics, a history in the words of their players, coaches, fans, and foes from 1946 to the present. Actually, the book ends in 1990, following that Celtics stunning loss to the New York Knicks, pretty much a dynasty-ending loss. I want to sort of get going right Right away here with Dan. Dan, do you consider that loss to the Knicks sort of like the real end of that era, and that's when the mystique truly died? That's a good question. It's kind of hard to pinpoint as I look back. I mean, you know, the last championship, of course, was 86, and and I think there was certainly an impression it was going to go on quite a bit longer, and and then uh, you had the the Len Bias thing was, was really a, a, a big setback for them, and Mikhail breaking his foot. And then the gradual age and attrition kind of took hold. But, uh, yeah, they were never, I, I think, a threat to win the championship with that group again after the, the Nick loss. You said that was kind of like the realization that, yeah, it was going to have to move on, rebuild. And do you think to that the initial fall of that Celtics team and really that empire, was it primarily due to just, I mean, bad luck? Or do you blame... Excluding the management in the later years, them Al Carr, Dave Gavitt, Patino, and those guys. But do you blame sort of the the fall of the original Celtics empire primarily on just bad luck, injuries to McHale, Bird, and obviously the death of Bias? Yeah, those things all you know all factors. And I think it's it's kind of evolution. It's very difficult. You know, the Lakers probably did a better job staving off uh, big big falls, big declines. It's hard not to bottom out in the NBA. Um, and it's the hardest of the four sports to to recover from when you do bottom out, because the talent quotient is is so necessary. And um, but I think that uh, you know for them, you can't really assign it to bad luck as much as is just natural old age. I mean, with people like Parrish, Bird, and you know Mikhail lasted longer, but he he was never quite the same after he broke the foot and and you know kind of. Rick's risked his own career uh, by playing with that in 87. And one of the things that I also noticed was even though they had that, that, that renaissance period, you know, with Garnett and Pierce and Allen, that old Celtics mystique and tradition, that really wasn't there during that time frame. And I don't know if you can blame it on our just new age of, you know, just our new new sports culture and just, you know, just new, our new way of living. But, has the mystique really ever been the same since um, that original big three faded off into the sunset? I would say probably not. I think that you know, young people, young players certainly, and, and fans grow up in other parts of the country, and the, the notion of the Celtics being special has really kind of gone away for, for a new generation because of the, the time it's been. And those of us, you know, the baby boomer crowd growing up in the 60s when Russell was there and, and they were annually champions, that really created that. It was a very much like the Yankees or the Canadians, Packers to a degree in the 60s. And, and you can't really replicate that. So I think what they were doing in the, in the 70s and 80s was, was clinging to some of that. And you still had young people, you know, guys like Larry Bird or Bill Walton who had grown up and worshiping Red Auerbach and, and having envy for the Celtics and and really appreciating the banners in the parquet, that's pretty much gone now. You can't find you know high school kids playing in these AAU tournaments. There's there's not a lot of cachet for Celtic Green, the parquet, or or the banners. And that's really interesting that you, that you mentioned that. I mean, one of the things that one of our columnists covered uh, following the release of my book was the new mindset of the fans and. Even though the team did have a, you know, 
a great run of success that if you signed, you know, if that was put on the table in June of 2007, almost anyone would have signed up for. The mindset still is in, it, it's still ingrained in the minds of many of that. It's still a 22-year stretch of futility that the team had. And that's still, I think, what makes up the mindset of fans and even the media today. And before that, like you said, in the 60s and in the 70s and the 80s, there was a sense of invincibility with the Celtics. Almost said that it was a birthright that the Celtics were, even when they were down, outside of maybe that stretch in the late 70s where it looked bleak. But even when the Celtics were down, it was always, yeah, but, you know, they're going to find a way and they'll be back on top and they'll be winning the championships. It's sort of the same way we used to feel about, you know, even we still probably do about the New York Yankees and, and other great franchises. Do you think that you're probably just going to reiterate the point that you made, but was the 22-year stretch that that team had, the dark ages as I referred to it, is that still really in the mindset of the media and the fans today? Well, I think that it depends on how old somebody is, but you know, the majority of fans certainly don't have the awareness of, of the good old days of the Celtics. And, you know, I mean, Red... Red Auerbach passing away takes a lot of that with him, I think. You know, a lot of it was him. And when you talk about, you know, getting good again in the 70s and again in the 80s, those were really generated by Red where they did bottom up, but they came back quickly. It was a different league then. Uh, it's harder to do now. And, um, you know, the drought that, that you know, preceded, you know, the big three, Garnett and those guys coming in, that was significant, and, and, and we're right back there now. It was a nice six-year window, and they were they were championship caliber. They they won one. They could have won at least two, possibly three, and uh, those were good times. But I don't think they ever uh, recaptured you know the magic that they had in the days of the old Celtics and the old Garden. And I sort of want to skip ahead here. One guy that I definitely want to touch this topic because the people that I interviewed for the book. They mentioned your name specifically, so I, w- I want to kind of lead this in. But frequent target of yours, uh, Paul Gasson, you were the one who dubbed him Thanks Dad. Where do you sort of rank Paul Gasson on the Mount Rushmore of, you know, terrible Boston sports owners up there with the Sullivan family, you know, Jacobs, uh, even a, one of those page jokesters like, you know, Victor Kayam or whatnot. I know you're the one of the great Boston historians, so I'm going to give you your four if you want to throw them on up there. Oh, there's some, there's some, um, you know, candidates uh, for the category you're working on, and I, I would certainly, I mean, the Sullivans get get elevated because they they invented the Patriots, I mean, they really founded them. They're found, literally founding fathers, and there was some buffoonery, certainly uh, along the way and, and toward the end. But um, that's a that's a pretty historic and important family uh, overall. The Gaston thing, you know, I mean, this was, it's it was obvious what it was. It was a guy who basically inherited the team and didn't seem to have a lot of passion for it or feel for it, or uh, he was not out front, didn't uh, exude a lot of accountability, and um, um, or, or that he ever really cared that much or had much passion for it. It, it felt like uh, more bookkeeping for him, and, and that happens. It's not his fault, but for the fans, I think it's they're always passionate and emotionally attached to the team, and, and when the owner's not, it, uh, you, you notice that. And one thing that is sort of Gaston from what from my research in this book was actually fairly involved. I think he took over the team in '93 from his father, and he was fairly involved. And it seemed that he was very competitive in the mid '90s, even as the team was. That was when the team was really down. You know, '96, '97, obviously the terrible 15 win season. But then after a while, with the Patino thing, I mean, he was all in on Patino really. And after a while with the Patino thing, that's when it really took his toll. He stopped appearing in team pictures, I believe, in 99. Rich Pond, who was the Celtics CEO at the time, COO, excuse me, at the time, was really the one running the team. And that's sort of when the Celtics became irrelevant to him. And I thought that the Celtics became irrelevant to to just the city of Boston in general because, you know, for the longest time, even when the team was struggling, as I stated, there was still a sense of, ah, oh, they're the Celtics, they're going to be back. Patino was sort of that big guy. You were actually, when they first brought Patino on board, a kind of a big, pretty big fan of Patino's. And it was funny, when I was talking to ML Carr for the book, he even sort of somewhat blamed you for Patino being in Boston in the first place because he said that 
you know, we were all set to hire Larry Brown and Larry Bird, but Paul Gasson didn't think that was going to create enough of a buzz, and he was getting killed by the people like, you know, quote-unquote, you for being called. I'm just, thanks, Dad. Could you talk sort of, you know, about the initial excitement, you know, Patino had when he was came on board? Yeah, it was exciting, and uh, and I definitely uh, bought into that. I thought Rick was going to work out great here because, you know, he had the he had the roots in the Big East and at Providence and and uh, UMass and just all of his uh, his local attachments. He's a basketball guy, and um, I was I was excited for the franchise. I thought that was going to be a good period. It was uh, it was shocking how ill-equipped uh, he was for that at that time in his life, and uh, you know goes down as a pretty dark period of the Celtics, but I would uh, I would sign on to the fact that I was all in at the beginning of that. I thought it would be good. And when did you sort of start to realize, when did the epiphany moment come to you? Was there ever like, you know, a, a specific personnel move or a game where they lost where it was sort of like, okay, this is not going to work out? I don't know. It just it, it went – it was just at the end that it was I, – I don't think I was quite – acknowledging the badness of it until the very end and just the way it ended. And, you know, there was obviously that goofy thing where, you know, Red Red's name moved down the masthead and, you know, like, what the hell is that? It just seemed odd. And uh, and we probably didn't pay enough attention to that at the time because in, in retrospect that looks bad and speaks to uh, issues. And um, But, uh, you know, the way it ended with Rick, it was just so – he just kind of slinked out of town. We never saw him and – and it was like good to have it over with. I, I felt badly about that. And of course, he's had a great second career, and and you know he's Hall of Fame college basketball coach. That's what he's clearly suited for, and uh, was not suited for this. And it is funny how you mentioned how none of us really did pay attention at the time for the president's title. I mentioned in the book when I when I was talking to uh, Red Auerbach's daughter Randy how at the time. Randy and some of the stalwarts of the organization, like ML Carr, were the only people making an issue of Patino taking the president's title. And I admit, too, I was absolutely ecstatic when Patino came on board. And yes, I mean, we never made an issue of, a, of the president's title at all. And it wasn't really actually until Patino was, I mean, that the infamous press conference in March 2000 was really what, you know, that was that was it for him. But it wasn't really until the very, very end we were sort of like, oh, wait, he just took Red's title three three years ago. No, it did. It, it played out exactly as you said. It was, it was not – it was just a small detail that was kind of sloughed off at the time. It, it was enlarged later on when, when all the badness unfolded. Now, I want to skip ahead here before I get you out of here. I'll ask you a few questions about today. I mentioned, we mentioned earlier how just the mindset of the fans and the media has certainly changed. And I think that that 22 year drought, the dark age is just, it's, I think there's still this air of negativity and, and pessimism that's in, in, it's in the air of the fans. It's right now the team is as bad as they can be. They're well on their way to another t- a top draft choice again. But the perception is, well, you need to be bad enough to get at the top of the draft, but the Celtics are screwed because they never get lucky in the lottery and they're going to get some mediocre player and they're going to be stuck forever. Obviously, I mean, I certainly don't feel that way. I actually feel very confident that the Celtics will be able to build something back up sooner rather than later. I think they'll make positive steps starting as soon as next year. I mean, how do you truly feel about the rebuild? Do you think this is just some endless, hopeless, abysmal situation? Yeah, I'm not a... a enthused about it. I don't like draft picks anymore. You don't know what you're getting. This might be one or two game changers you see it, but um, kids don't know how to play when they come out of college. It's it's, it's so risky looking at one year, and uh, people aren't ready. So you just don't have uh, impact guys. You know, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird coming in and you know, flipping your, your franchise around in one year. Dave Cowens is able to do that for this team. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of it. I uh, the, the less I think about it, the better, because it just just makes me sad. Don't like it. That, that, that's your specialty. Yeah, but it's not interesting. If you're doing like a talk radio show, if you're doing you know three hours of sports talk radio, it's a short topic. Once you say it, there's nothing else to talk about. It doesn't it doesn't lend itself to uh, to a lot of uh, back and forth. But I, I do think, you know, I mean, while they are accumulating all these draft choices and, I mean, like you said, the Magic Johnsons, the Larry Birds, the Patrick Ewings, David Robinsons, 
Uh, there's also another guy we forgot to mention, Tim Duncan. <laughs> we, we, we don't have to go there, obviously. Those right. guys don't exist at the top of the draft anymore. Or they're just like, you win the lottery, you get this guy, and that's it. You're off and running, and in you know, three years, you're winning championships. But now what we're seeing, though, is I think Ainge sort of blew the door wide open on this, is now there's an obsession of collecting draft choices for rebuilding teams, not just Boston, but obviously Philadelphia is doing it too. And it's now not the draft anymore as much as it is trading for, you know, the next, you know, whiny superstar that comes on the market, which is now seemingly every year in the NBA. Yeah, the whole process is discouraging, and I'm not a fan of it. And I, I really, I really don't enjoy anything about it. I write very little about them anymore because of everything you've just talked about. Well, obviously, you know, you were covering the team uh, during greener days when you obviously put out Evergreen. Obviously, those were the glory years of the NBA. Almost like that, it, it, it's a, a burden on the NBA because those times were just so good. And I don't think the product is that bad right now. I think it's actually pretty good. But what we saw in the 80s, all the way even up to the early 90s, just sort of, you know, it, 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 the level, the bar was just set almost just too high. Yeah, those were good days. I mean, I, I, I lived it every day, and I feel very privileged to have been there. I mean, I grew up with the teams in the 60s, and obviously the game has evolved, and in, in my view, not in a in a better way. And a lot of it goes back to their farm system is the colleges, and the way that's structured now, and it's America. They're they're allowed to go out and earn a living, but we don't have developed players coming into the league anymore, and, and it's a loss for everybody. Dan Shaughnessy, I'll get you out on that. That's Dan Shaughnessy, longtime scribe for the Boston Globe. You can follow Dan on Twitter at Dan underscore Shaughnessy. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good luck with the book. All right. Thank you, Dan Shaughnessy, for the time, as well as the kind words and best wishes for fall of the Boston Celtics. Kind words not directed towards today's self, though. You can add Dan Shaughnessy to the growing fan base and media pessimists, although I guess he was already there in regards to this current Celtics and the current rebuild. But back to the present when we discuss the Celtics and their maiden voyage out west for 2015, previewing tomorrow's game in Los Angeles with Clippers color commentator Michael Smith. Back after this. Hi, this is Sean Backey from CLNS Radio and the Evening Score Sports Podcast. Kickstart your new year and challenge yourself to learn something new with a free 10-day trial to lynda.com. lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 4,500 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. All of their courses are taught by experts and new courses are added to the site every week. Whether you want to set new financial goals, find work-life balance, invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, or even find a new job or improve upon the current job skills in 2015, lynda.com has something for everyone. Now, if you sign up today for the free 10-day trial by visiting lynda.com slash CLNS, you'll get the benefits of unlimited access to every course on lynda.com. You'll also get access to view tutorials on tablets and iPhone and Android mobile devices, as well as access to new courses added every week. Some of the courses that were recommended for me uh, include analyzing your website to improve SEO, viral marketing, and web analytics fundamentals. Do something good for yourself in 2015 and sign up for the free 10-day trial to lynda.com by visiting lynda.com slash CLNS. Go ahead, I challenge you to learn something new in 2015. I want to take this time to tell our audience that you can get a free 10-day trial of this great online service at www.lynda.com slash CLNS. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash CLNS. Learn a new skill, be it fitness, business, language, arithmetic, you name it. And it's all free for your first 10 days when you sign up at lynda.com slash CLNS. You know, maybe you can even learn something such as write a book like, oh, I don't know, follow the Boston Celtics. Obviously, we just had a great conversation there with Dan Shaughnessy before the break about that era. And I'd like to again thank Dan 
But speaking of the book, I'd like to welcome in someone who actually contributed that book, and I am ever so thankful for it. Current Los Angeles Clippers color commentator, and for my money, the best in the game, and former NBA player and BYU standout himself, Michael Smith. Mike, it's been a long time. Good to speak with you once again. Well, thank you, Larry. Appreciate you having me on. No, it's great. A lot. Obviously, we're going to get back into real basketball talk here. We've been talking a lot about the book for the last few weeks on the show, and the Celtics are going out on a West Coast trip. First stop for them is going to be Los Angeles tomorrow, Martin Luther King Day on Monday. And if there's any team that the Celtics and their fans really watch, it, it is the Clippers, you know, outside of having the draft choice, obviously. But with the Brooklyn breakup, all that's really left now is, is Doc and obviously the, the kinship that fans still have with him. We're now a year and a half into the Doc Rivers regime in Los Angeles. Has Doc come as advertised out there? Well, absolutely. And who could have predicted what he would have to go through and, and stand up and face as kind of the head of this organization, the face of the franchise with the whole, you know, ownership debacle and what went down last year. Um, I can't imagine any of our previous coaches, and I've been there now 17, 18 years, being able to not only withstand it, but handle it with such character and pride and, and, and really lead that team through an unbelievably difficult first round of the playoffs a year ago with the Golden State Warriors and, and really had them in a position to win the all-important game five at Oklahoma City. That would have put them up 3-2 to go home with a chance to close them out and get a chance at the Spurs. And eventually they just ran out of gas, and I think it was as much emotional gas as anything else. But uh, Doc is uh, media savvy, as you know. He's lovable and likable. He's a born leader. And and uh, I don't know, for my two cents, I think he's the best in the league at drawing up a play coming out of timeout. So yeah, I'm kind of glad he's here. That's certainly uh, you. Um, that's certainly what we we saw here in Boston for so many years. That's actually sort of what what jumped out right away. His first year, he had like a decent team. The team actually won the Atlantic Division in two thousand five, and that was like Gary Payton, Paul Pierce, a young Al Jefferson, and that was what jumped out right at me. Best in the league at drawing up a play out of the timeout. But I really want to get back to what you just said when you called him the face of the franchise. And I was actually even going to get into how much of a part he has become of the Clippers' identity. And obviously with the organization following last year's unfortunate circumstances that made its way not just across the NBA headlines but national headlines, you would, right. you would really say that Doc is pretty much the face of the Clippers even over Chris Paul and, you know, Blake Griffin, two of the you know, seven best players in the league? I kind of think so. Uh, and that's, I know, a bold statement. Um, I, I, had we not gone through... What happened with the ownership, I don't think that would be the case. I think it would be Chris Paul's team. Uh, I think Blake Griffin with the highest upside and, you know, certainly running a, a very, you know, 1A to Chris's 1 in terms of face and face of the franchise and, and eventually them splitting that duty. But with what happened and how Doc was thrust into the forefront of Every situation that he had to answer for the team, stand up for the team, prepare the team, uh, answer the media, and I just think he really became the face of it all, and that's kind of how I see it now. You know, he's such a classy guy. I mean, a lot of people, when you see him on TV or or in these raw, uncut interviews and everything and in front of press conferences, and they're, they're kind of one guy in front of the camera. And they're another guy, you know, at a restaurant, on the golf course, or just to sort of everybody else. But, I mean, just the way that Doc treats people from top to bottom, whether it's a Chris Paul or whether it's the guy sleeping the floor, I mean, is really just, I think that's probably the most commendable aspect of him. I think the thing that guys respect the most, and I'm speaking now of the players, is that he will speak to them what he really thinks. And so... If you're at the end of the bench, I mean, he'll probably say something like, listen, as things are right now, you're not going to play. You're not in my rotation. That doesn't mean you can't be. It doesn't mean things won't change a year from now. It uh, doesn't mean I might not feel differently uh, down the road than I do now. But here's how I feel. 
So don't be offended if you don't play, but let's talk about it. For example, we got a guy like uh, Hito Turkoglu on the team who, you know, Doc knows oh so well as an opponent from like that 2009 year when everyone expected them to go back to the finals and Orlando knocked them out in the conference semis 4-3 and I think it was Hito in a game seven that went nuts. He doesn't play all that much for us. But Doc has him there. I think totally expects to use him at the end of the season in the playoffs. He's preserving his body. And there are many times when he could go in the game where they were up 20 or down 15 in the fourth quarter. And I can just tell that they've had a conversation, a very open and frank conversation, where he just probably said, listen, I don't need to go into a game where we're either up 20 or down 20, so you can feel good about it and feel like everybody's getting a run. I don't need that. And so that's just an example of how he would have that kind of open dialogue with everybody on the team. Yeah, no, it's also funny that you mentioned that. I remember uh, Sam Cassell, who fell out of the Celtics rotation in 2008, Obviously, in that final game, the Celtics blew the floor off the Lakers, and Cassell never ended up going in the game, and Doc wanted to actually put him in the game. Like, hey, you know, it's the clinching game. We're up by 40 points. I mean, you don't want to play in the championship clinching. He's like, and he actually told him, no. And you're right. Doc is just this very honest and forefront individual, and you see it, obviously, with the media. But I actually want to sort of get into his actual coaching and not what a great guy he is, because I think everybody knows that, that that truly is the case. But one player in particular, obviously, is DeAndre Jordan. You know, earlier in his career, he was, a, you know, a great player to watch, fun player. You know, it was a highlight, highlight film. But, I mean, he was a really good player on a bad team who had sufficient deficiencies on the defensive end of the floor. You know, he still has him at the foul line. That's probably never going to be the case where he'll improve that. But what's been the change, at least defensively, where he's now at least competent? Has it really been coaching or just natural maturation from a young player? No, I think it was Doc who has provided the spark in DeAndre. And I'll even take it a step farther from what you said. He was not a really good player on a bad team. He was a really poor player on a bad team who had incredible upside and had great potential. So a physically gifted player, uh, and I'm talking about God-given length and speed and agility and all the while, I call him today the best running center that I've ever seen. And I, I, I'll get some tweets from people who say, well, haven't you, seen, uh, haven't you seen Will Chamberlain in his prime? And my answer is no. <laughs> I, I never saw Wilt in his prime. When Wilt wins a title with the Lakers in 72, I'm you know six years old in L.A., and those games weren't on television, so I did not. But I don't know if Wilt ran like that. I don't know if Bill Russell ran like that. Um, I do know what Shaq was. I do know what David Robinson was. I do know what uh, even Dwight Howard before back surgery was. This guy runs like a gazelle at seven feet tall and a seven-six wingspan. And so the raw potential was there, but he was not a good player. Larry, he was, he was below average in every regard. He was not a shot blocker. He was not a determined rebounder. He was a goofball. And Doc came in from day one and said, for us to get where we want to go, we need a big three. And DJ, as we call him, became part of that big three from the moment Doc got here. Uh, they put banners up in the city, and it was Blake, Chris Paul, and DJ that cover our media guide was Blake, Chris, Paul, and DJ. And it, it just, Doc created the perception and the conception in his mind and just gave DJ ultimate confidence and praised him up and down and told him how much he needed him. And the kid responded. And so last year was a huge leap forward. And this year, although the free throw shooting is still lacking, and that may be a physical or physiological thing with huge hands that, you know, you just can't develop a touch with, you know, a ball that small and those big mitts. But uh, he's even better this year than he was a year ago. So actually, to real quick follow-up, he's actually a free agent at the end of the season. How confident are you that, team, that Los Angeles will keep him? And do you think that he should be actually paid as one of the top, you know, three or four centers in the league? It's a good question. Um, 
I'm not certain of the answer. His value is even greater to our particular team because of his friendship with Blake Griffin. Like they are, they are best buddies. Uh, they do everything together. They keep each other loose. If one of them's losing control in a game, it's the other one who calms them down and makes them smile and laugh. They are, you know, the the perfect complement to one another as far as their personalities on the floor. So that almost creates a greater value for him than maybe what his true value is. Um, he, he's, he's going to demand more than he makes now in the open market. And I totally understand his defensive uh, prowess and the need to have a player like that on the team. But let's say the Clippers, as presently constituted, could not get past the first round this year, which is a distinct possibility with how tough the West is. You are then faced with a very difficult question. Do you re-sign this player for that much money and basically inhibit yourself from changing your constitution? And that means you have to win with the same group or the same core, add some great piece, and do the rest of the evolving through coaching or change, and I don't know that that's possible. So I don't know. I'm not signing those checks, and so and I'm not the general manager, so I don't speak for the team, but I kind of feel like if they did not get past the first round this year and never found their rhythm and didn't peak, I'm kind of feeling like you'd need to shake up this group in some way to create what you want to create because this team is built to win now. It's not the stage the Celtics are in. It's not the stage the Lakers are about to enter into and are slowly fading into where they're going to rebuild and scrap and start over. This is a team with two superstars, a championship coach, and an owner willing to do whatever it takes to win who's going to want results right now. I guess we're in a bizarre world when we're talking about how the Clippers need to win the championship right away and they're not in the position that the Lakers and the Celtics are in. Whoever thought we'd be saying that <laughs> five, six years ago. But I want to talk about the expectations for the Clippers. And you, you mentioned the possibility of them losing in the first round. I mean, we know this is a great team, but like you said, it's the Western Conference. I mean, the San Antonio Spurs could lose in the first round. Any one of these teams could lose in the first round. You know, the Clippers are still perceived as this really nice, heartwarming story, especially even what happened last year. But it actually has been four years since that game-changing Chris Paul trade. Do you think that, you know, or when, do you think it's possible where fans could get frustrated if they continue to not make that real breakthrough and actually reach an NBA Finals or even, dare we say it, win a championship? Absolutely. I, I, I can sense it now. I can, I can feel it. Um, I think in some ways the team felt like they were really close to being a contender the last two years and ran into the one team two years ago that they could not beat because it's just a bad matchup for them. That's the Memphis Grizzlies. They continue to be a mad, bad matchup for them. Um, that was two years ago. That knocked them out of the playoffs in the first round. That was a shocking series with the Clippers up 2-0. Um, and then last year, the Spurs, for the second time in three years, no, uh, Oklahoma City, excuse me, on a, on a series when they had the upper hand, it looked like, in that game five, up seven, 49 seconds to go. I mean, you would have bet your house that they were going home with a chance to close it out in game six. That didn't happen. And so they felt like we had a team poised to win it all or at least contend for it all. And they felt like, I think in some ways, the only thing holding them back was ownership that was created such uncertainty. So when that got resolved so quickly and all of a sudden uh, it didn't linger with lawsuits and it didn't linger under this season, it was just done. It was done. Team was sold. Mr. Sterling is gone and they're moving on. I think in some ways they felt like we're home free. Like we got this thing now. We got a we got a cooperative owner. He loves the game. He's a fan. He he's willing to help. And I think that honestly is how they got out of the shoot so slow this year. They just kind of felt like it would happen, and they forgot to go back to work. So it was a little bit of a a championship hangover without the championship. And you 
know, they started the season five and four, and they were like, uh, I guess we better get back to some principles. So that's kind of a roundabout way of answering that, yes, I already feel it and sense it. Like, there's a sense this year that, you know, that they may not be good enough as they're currently built. But I just, I sense that, you know, maybe Doc's got some things up his sleeve and this team could totally look different uh, in a week or two weeks. And even right about an all-star break than it does right now. And I'm even talking personnel wise. What do you, I mean, if we're able to ask this, what do you think could be some possible changes? Well, that's not for me to say. Uh, I, just, I just get the impression from watching them that they can't win what they want to win as presently built, and they're going to have to make some tweaks. And that means make some trades. That may mean wave some players. Uh, I envision some players are going to get bought out. And I think, you know, there's a possibility one or two of those players could be impactful. And Doc and Chris Paul and Blake are the kind of personalities that could lure somebody like that to one of these teams. You mentioned Chris Paul, and obviously I really can't do this interview without mentioning Chris Paul. He's been he's the best player in the history of the franchise. He's now approaching 30 years old. I think he's, he's either turning 30 this year or next year, but... Statistically, he's still maintaining very high efficiency. Now, I have to admit, I'm out here in Boston, so I don't. I, it, it's very hard for me to watch Chris Paul live. In fact, I'll admit it right now. I, I never watch Chris Paul live. I don't. I never watch any 10:30 games live, uh, unless he's actually on <laughs> one, one o'clock. But do you still statistically up there? Very high efficiency ratings. Do the numbers confirm what you've? You know, you have the privilege of seeing on a night-to-night basis. Yeah, he's still very good. Um, I think his current numbers at like 18 points, nine and a half assists, four and a half rebounds, one and a half steals. He's the only player in the league putting up those numbers. And I think there's only five in league history who've done that for an entire season. Um, don't remember exactly who those guys are, but he's one of the five. Isaiah's another one. Magic and Oscar um, would be good guesses. Yeah, they're they're good guesses, and the thing that separates those numbers from most guys is the 1.5 steals. Otherwise, Magic would have made that every every year. But um, yes, I mean he he's still every bit as good as he ever was. There, there's been no slip slippage physically at his age. There's no breaking down of his body at this point. He's had a couple of issues the last two years where he's missed a stretch of ten games. <clears throat> but at his size, I recognize how the league is evolving and how difficult it is to win in the later rounds. And he has not gotten past the second round of the playoffs. And it's sad because statistically he's going to be thought of as one of the greatest to ever play his position. And if he doesn't get past the second round, how is he going to be viewed and how is he going to be ju- judged in a world where we put so much emphasis on a title and, and finals and rings and Super Bowls and football and those kind of things. But uh, he, he's a magician. He, he, he's amazing. Uh, I, I think the fact that he is so short and so effective makes him all the more amazing to me. And he's, he's the kind of guy that, if, you know, you'd want him in your foxhole. If there's a loose ball and he's within three feet of it, he wins that battle. <laughs> Every time. Like quick, strong, tough. I wish you were three inches taller. If he were six foot three or six foot four, he would be the best player in basketball next to LeBron. Yeah, you mentioned also Isaiah Thomas, how he's very has very comparable statistics to him. I think that truly is, I mean the comparison really to make, especially in terms of the overall competitiveness. But also that's, that's always been my one worry with Chris Paul and even smaller guards in general, especially uh, Paul, who's had an injury history already and, and is going back to even his mid-20s, is, I mean, when, when uh, Isaiah Thomas started, to get him, started getting issues with his wrists when he was like 31, 32, I mean, he broke down fast, and I mean, he was like out of the league almost quick. I mean, he went from Hall of Fame talent to someone who couldn't even, you know, 
play. So you really hope that isn't the case with Paul. He's actually seems to shed his bad health recently, but I, I mean, I guess you never know. He is always just one, you know, diving on the floor play away from, you know, <laughs> not seeing that Chris Paul again. Yeah, I hope for great health continued. I, he's he's one of those guys that I don't think he's I don't think he lasts till you know thirty seven and beyond. Although you know this year flirting with a fifty forty ninety year, and that's kind of cool when you consider he was not like a pure shooter when he came into the league. So uh, the two point guards who achieved the fifty forty ninety, I think Mark Price and. Steve Nash. Um, there's a couple others who did it but didn't qualify, if you know what I mean. Like Jose Calderon did it one time and two other near misses, and Steve Kerr even had a 50-50-90 year, but those guys didn't qualify because they didn't shoot the 125 free throws you have to shoot to qualify for that rule. But he's flirting with it this year, which bodes well for his aging process. Uh, normally guards who are shorter, who are not pure shooters, they're not the Steph Currys of the world, they don't tend to age that well because size and speed tends to catch up with them, makes it really, really difficult. But, so I hope for good health for him. But I really believe his window to win it is about this year and three more. And I think that's the extent of it. That's kind of why I'm saying the answer to your DeAndre Jordan question uh, if it doesn't work this year, you might have to break up that big three in one way or another if you're going to get where you want to get because this is not a 24-year-old Russell Westbrook and Durant who you can continue to tweak and add pieces to, and they're still going to hit their prime in a few years. This team has got this window, I think, of about three to four years. And that's definitely sort of a great way to wrap up our conversation on the Clippers. Because if no, I've had, I've had you here for a little bit before. But before I get you out of here, Mike, I got to ask for some advice. Uh, so we're dealing with a bad basketball team here in Boston. And once upon a time, the Clippers, believe it or not, were a bad basketball team. It seems like so long ago where that was the case. But, and there were those endless amounts of season of the dreaded, you know, playing out the string. Do you have sort of any advice for Celtics fans? Because obviously we can't do what you guys do out in L.A. and go surfing and play golf during these months. <laughs> oh, I don't surf as much as I used to. I got two, uh, two little ones still hanging around. They just turned seven. So when I'm not on for a basketball game, they're chomping at the bit to do something fun. But uh, I do love to get out and hit the ball in the links tough to do even during basketball season. But uh, you guys are in great hands. Uh, you've got the masterful genius of Danny Ainge at the helm of your franchise. I mean, he is not only stockpiling picks, but he recognizes talent. Uh, your Marcus Smart's going to be a star. Uh, Sullinger showing that that was a savvy move. I mean, little by little, that team is going to come together. He's got a young, brilliant coach, youngest in the league with just a, a creative mind. They are not long away from being the competitive team. And, and who knows in the next two, three drafts if they don't hit one home run, but two. Look what one home run or the right home run did for San Antonio. I mean, you think that'll never be equal, but why can't it be equal? Why can't the next Tim Duncan be coming along 20 years after the former Tim Duncan? So Celtic uh, fans are in good shape. I know the losing stinks, but when the Clippers were losing, I never felt like we were in good hands. So I felt like that would last forever. I, I know the Celtic losing will not last forever. All right, Michael Smith, Clippers color commentator for Prime Ticket and Fox Sports West. You can follow Mike on Twitter at ClipsTVSmith. Mike, thanks so much for the chat once again. You got it. All right, well, that was a pretty positive way to end our chat with the very astute Michael Smith, the color commentator for the Clippers out there in Los Angeles. Want to get back into that chat with Michael in just a few minutes, but I need to take this time to announce a contest that we have going on on the show. Obviously, we have a tremendous and loyal collection of listeners, and one very gracious fan has actually donated a season ticket holder benefit to us here at Celtics Beat. 
which we in turn would like to donate to you, our audience. So you want to win that season ticket holder benefit, which includes a tour of the Boston Celtics practice facility, the locker room, as well as a shoot-around in Waltham, Massachusetts, go to our Facebook page, that's Celtics Beat on CLNS, like us so you can leave a comment, and then leave a comment saying that you're in and will announce on the Celtics Beat Twitter account this week one lucky winner. So you probably might want to give us a follow on our Twitter account, which is, again, Celtics underscore Beat, because the announcement will come at random. So feel free to go ahead and do that at your leisure, of course. But let's definitely get back into that chat. Obviously, the Celtics and their fans, they definitely enjoy following the Clippers along with a few other teams. You know, with the rivalry with the Lakers, Celtics fans, no matter how bad the Lakers are, no matter how bad the Celtics are, never take their eye off Los Angeles and the Lakers. That's just a continuous, ever-going rivalry that they will have. And whichever team Paul Pierce is on this year, it's the Wizards. Celtics fans will obviously be keeping an eye on them and even rooting for Washington, I'm sure, to come out of the Eastern Conference. And now, of course, we have the Clippers with Doc. Doc's been there for – this is his second year. It actually seems like Doc's been there for – I don't know if maybe it's just me. It seems like Doc's been there for five years. And I think that might be because what Michael Smith said on the show, he is the face of that franchise, which is incredible. As I stated earlier, they have two of the top seven players, even top five players in the NBA. Definitely say if you can say – Top seven, and Doc is the face of that franchise. When Doc was here, he never he was not the face of the team. In fact, obviously the big three was the team, and even Rondo. And Doc was just sort of like the serpent, the guide. Doc is Doc is the Clippers, and I think Doc's going to be there a really long time. Basically, in the sense because I mean he has infinite amount of control he gets to play all the golf in the world he wants his kids are grown up and now he's got one kid playing for him so I think it's great Doc is I say what you want about Doc Doc is probably the nicest guy in the NBA at least for my money I, mean, I haven't met everybody in the NBA but in terms of what's going on now I mean just a class act all the way definitely someone you want representing your organization and as guys like Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, they're not going to be there forever. I'm not sure if Doc Rivers will be there forever, but there's a better chance, I think, that Doc will be there longer than both of those guys, even if Griffin's a younger player, because I think maybe Doc won't be coaching forever, but he's certainly going to be around. He's going to have decisions in personnel, which is, as we all know, is something that he wanted. And there were rumors, I think, around like 2009, 2010, 2011-ish, that Doc was intrigued by a job down in Orlando and having personnel decisions down in Orlando and never end up taking it. In fact, conversations never, I don't think they even went anywhere, but it was out there. We knew that was something that Doc wanted. He's got it in Los Angeles. He's got I, probably as good as owner as you can get. I mean, the guy who spent $2 billion to buy one of the most, you know, the losingest organization in the history of the sport wasn't the case when he bought it, but that was still the fact that stuck with them. But one thing that Michael said, obviously, that's stuck out like a sore thumb, very interesting comments he made about them possibly retooling not just their team eventually, but even this year. And we talked about DeAndre Jordan, and he's the much-improved DeAndre Jordan, but he is a free agent at the end of the year. He's likely going to command a max contract or whatever, you know, some sort of high contract that pays him as one of the top three centers in the NBA. And it probably is the case. He's around the you know, top three to five center in the league. So, you know, what is Los Angeles going to do, especially if they do lose in the first round this year? And losing in the first round in the West isn't like a choke for any team. I mean, as I mentioned, the Spurs could technically lose in the first round. And they're the defending champions. It, it all comes down to matchups. I mean, it's like, for example, if Cleveland lost in the first round in the East, that's just a catastrophic failure. If any team, be it the Spurs, be it the Thunder, be it the Clippers, be it anybody who makes the playoffs out West, Golden State, they lose in the first, I mean, it's just... It's likely due that they just drew a bad matchup because the Western Conference is is brutal. And, you know, if the Clippers were out East, you know, they'd likely be in the finals every year or the Eastern Conference finals every year. But out West, it's tough. And do the Clippers have that durability? And is their style of play sustainable enough for them to make it through that gauntlet? Personally, I think it is. I actually picked them to win the Western Conference this year and, you know, go to the NBA Finals and 
I still think they're going to play Cleveland, by the way. I, I think that Cleveland's come out of the East. We'll get back to that in a moment around the NBA in five. But they haven't busted through yet. And I still think they're on a level that's greater than, say, like a Houston, a Portland, or a Phoenix, where I, I just don't really see those teams really going anywhere no matter what. Whereas I think the Clippers certainly have the potential to win an NBA championship as presently constituted. They just match up poorly, as Michael said, with the Grizzlies. And I know the Spurs, you know, took care of them in the playoffs. I think it was uh, three years ago now. They beaten up. They beat them up pretty good. But, you know, that can change. There's no doubt that their window is solely based on Chris Ball and whatever his expiration date is in terms of the prime of his career. But Will they make change for the sake of making a change? Because, you know, as Celtics fans know, windows can only stay open so long. And once they close, you have what the Celtics have now. And that's just, you know, not fun of rebuilding. Nobody enjoys rebuilding in the NBA. It's a long and deliberate process that requires as much luck as it does skill. As we are seeing now with these Celtics. And I know Michael is very optimistic about the Celts' chances and getting back to where they want to be. I think regardless, no matter what, I say in about two or three years, the Celtics are going to be a 50-win team because they just have so many assets that eventually they're going to trade for players that will make them better. But that's just not how success in Boston is measured. 45, 50, you know, 50-win seasons and you know, division championship here and there. We all know what the end game that fans want to see. And this year, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed this year. I, 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 I'm, I'm telling you that if you want to see the Celtics win, don't worry about it. That's coming. But this year, I think, was a disappointment because they needed some certain players to make substantial strides. And let's get more specific. There was really one guy, and it was Jared Selinger. And there's no doubt about it. He plateaued this year. And he got off to that great start. He came into camp in great shape. He played like a borderline all-star at the beginning of the year. And now he's, you know what? He's fallen out of shape. He's he's not in good shape. I don't know what he's doing. He's probably back on some poor diet or something. But that's my only explanation for it because you're playing basketball every night. How you can come into the season in better shape than you are now after playing you know, as much basketball as you do. But... You know, sometimes certain individuals lose motivation in these, you know, losing environments. And that's what the Celtics are right now. It's a losing bad environment. And they lose such motivation to get better because those immediate rewards of winning basketball games and enjoying yourself just isn't there. So in a guy like Jared Sollinger's case, I guess, you know, he's probably rewarding himself with pastries in the North End. But, you know, he came into shape now, but not he's not the case now. And other players, you know, you got guys like Kelly Olynyk and Tyler Zeller. I mean, I like them, but they're not guys that are going to change the fortunes of the franchise. We, Olenek, you know, Zeller's had his moments. Olenek had a nice game against the Bulls off the bench last night. He's definitely carved out a nice role there. But those guys aren't going to, like I said, they're not going to turn this franchise around, be it them being here or even through a trade. I mean, we saw last year or over the summer, Flip Saunders. I mean, he sure looks good right now, disregarding that Celtics offer of just, you know, a player here and a bunch of draft picks. As Saunders said, I need a proven player or a player that is going to immediately make my team or any team better. And on this roster, the Celtics have all these players that could have nice roles in the league, but None of these guys are game changers that can substantially improve a team. Not 20 wins, but, you know, 3 to 8, 5 to 10. None of them can do that. So that's really why I'm just disappointed in the season and the fact that I didn't see any improvement. And obviously now we're well into January. They're going out west tomorrow. They're going to get obliterated out west in this coming week. It's going to be a ish show. Let's put it that way. And I'm just, I'm definitely let down by what we've seen. And while I do think this, I agree with Michael, the Celtics are in good hands with Danny Ainge. He's one of the best general managers in the league. But I cannot definitively tell you that banners lie ahead. I can tell you that there will be some good seasons that lie ahead under the Ainge regime, championships, or even a championship. You know, as Michael Smith alluded to, it's going to take a lot of luck. And certainly, as I mentioned in the book, 
And uh, looks like actually we ran out of time there. I was gonna real excited to do around the NBA in five. You know, I was actually gonna talk about the Austin Rivers trade to the Clippers. Obviously, that was a trade the Celtics were involved in, but you know, the Celtics make so many trades now that I think we've all become numb to them. And I was gonna talk about Austin Rivers, obviously Brooke Lopez and the Knicks, they stink, right? Twenty six of the last twenty seven, but here's the real depressing part. When did uh, that one win came against the Celtics, huh? Since they think they've won one game since the middle of November. But that's actually going to do it for uh, this week's edition of Celtics Beat. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Will Rock, Chuck Dietz, and Steph Legato. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat. Definitely want to uh, give that a follow so you can see how you do in the contest. And you can like Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio on Facebook to keep up with the show. And, of course, to enter the contest, definitely like to thank our guests, Dan Shaughnessy of the Boston Globe and Michael Smith of Fox Sports West and Prime Ticket out there for the color commentator of the Los Angeles Clippers. For our staff writer, Eddie Santiago. For myself, who hosted and is also the executive producer of this show, I'm Larry H. Russell. See you next Sunday with special guest Jeff Goodman of ESPN and ESPN.com for another edition of Celtics Beat, heard exclusively on CLNS Radio.